Well, can I encourage you to have Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16 open in front of you today. And we want to give a very warm welcome to our friends in Molesworth Presbyterian Church, Cookstown, as you join with us and we share in your service through this sermon today. We trust that this will be a blessing to you as we today continue in a series that we've been working through in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians and chapter 4. And today, under the title, this is your life. This is our life once again. Up until this point in Ephesians, over these last 56 verses so far, we've read of God's grace and encountered only one command. It's quite incredible. We've had three whole chapters, and Paul's only command is to do one thing in service for our Savior. In other words, we've been wallowing in God's unspeakable, multidimensional, technicolored, glorious storehouse of treasure for the believer in Ephesians 1 to 3. For three chapters, we've been taken to every conceivable beauty spot in God's kingdom. We've hardly had time to gasp at its breadth, marvel at its immeasurable mercy, and take in the tremendous tenderness that God has shown towards us as sinners. But now, here in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is a little bit like one of those Olympic long jumpers at the start of his run-up. For he stops, and it's almost as if he's been getting the crowd clapping and looking around at the wonderful scenery of God's grace towards him. And he's, he's whipping up the crowd. He's encouraging them. But then he realizes, just like the long jumper has had those weeks and months of looking around and taking in what the environment will be like and doing all the training and taking the right nutritional drinks. But now is the moment of truth. As he stands at the end of his run and prepares to hit that board and leap into that long jump pit. And so chapter 4 verse 1 is the hinge, the starting point, the liftoff point, if you like, of the whole letter. For Paul wants his readers to stop to take stock of all that's gone on before, all that they've been called to be before being launched into the world. In other words, where the rubber hits the road. They've received a calling, we read in chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, Paul writes, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've already received. We're to live lives that reflect what we already know of Christ. You see, something has changed. No longer are these Ephesian believers condemned to hell, but rather they're sinners who have been rescued by God's grace, and they're on their way to heaven. And the question that chapters 4 to 6 pose is this. What's our response to the riches of Christ? How does the fact that we're seated in the heavenly realms impact our relationships? How does the spiritual truth that Christ lives in us change the way we speak or serve our boss? How does the immeasurable love of Christ shape our attitude towards fellow Christians here in the church or at home with the be a husband or wife, a son or daughter, or children to parents? You see, what we believe must make a difference to how we behave. Let me say that again. What we believe must make a difference to how we behave. And so Paul's first call on the Ephesian Christians is to walk worthily in terms of their Christian unity. That's our first point today. We're to walk worthily in terms of Christian unity. Read about that in verses 2 to 6. Now, 
no two of us are the same. We've all got a range of personalities, idiosyncrasies and interests. Our backgrounds are different, family, upbringing, education, skills, even our sense of humor or our church involvement. If we were to take a straw poll in Cookstown or here in Macrafelt today about what our week ahead will look like, we would have an amazing scattergraph of where people are and what people will be doing. Whether it be grandmothers giving childcare, right the way through to people attending critical hospital appointments, from business deals that some people are going to carry out this week, to assignments to be completed, or job applications or interviews coming up, or whether it be just enjoying some time on holiday. Then there are our habits. Some of us have annoying habits or an irritating manner of speaking that rubs people up the wrong way. Others say too much, whilst others say very little. There are the busy and the bustling people, but then there are the dawdlers and the daydreamers. The church of Jesus Christ is a bunch of all sorts of people. And on any usual Sunday morning, we're like a, a huge 200 or 300 piece jigsaw that is to spell out when it's all put together God's grace in bold letters to our community. Oh, it'd be so much easier if we're all just the same shape and size and just reflected one particular group in society. But part of God's great plan is to reflect his greatness in our diversity. And it's only in our differences like a jigsaw that we actually fit together. That's how a jigsaw works, isn't it? Because the pieces are different sizes and shapes, they actually fit better together. But we are at times in danger of slicing the church into segments that reflect our culture rather than Christ, aren't we? I think it's something that we need to be very wary of, and aware of at least, especially before we go rushing into all our organizations, starting again when lockdown eases even more. Because how many of our groups in church are age-related, or gender organized, or interest based. And whenever we organize everything in church around that, we're going to be sunk. Tullian Chavidian, who is Billy Graham's grandson, writes this The soul shrinking byproduct of this type of tribalism is that it prevents us from knowing God deeply. The only way to know him deeply is to have many different types of Christian people in your life, since each person will help reveal a part of God that you can't see yourself. This means the great tragedy of segregation isn't so much that we see less of one another, but that in separating from others, we see less of God. It's quite powerful, that, isn't it? And so the essential element in our walking with Jesus is that we are committed not just to the head of the church, he is Christ, but to his body, the church herself. So how are we to do that? How does it look? Well, we read on in verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 4, we're to be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. This is a call to unity despite our diversity. And the first thing that Paul points out is that we are to be humble humble. Now, humility was something that was regarded as very distasteful and a sign of weakness in the Roman world. And we're not so far from that today, are we? You know, even that word pride, which is the opposite of humility, is all about ourselves wanting to be noticed. Sell yourself. Put yourself forward. Don't stand back. 
and even in the day and age of TV celebrities often being celebrities because they're just celebrities. It's not that they've achieved anything in life or, or done anything, but it's because they've pushed themselves forward because of their quirky, outrageous, or confident ability rather than anything they've actually done. They, they just stand out because they're proud. There's not much humility in too much of our Saturday night TV or our YouTube channels. But rather, in God's terms, humility is something that we possess. It's a gift that's given from God. In fact, it's living in the love of Ephesians 1 to 3, reminding ourselves every day as we interact with everyone, I was dead in sin. I don't deserve God's grace. I was going nowhere until God burst in. And we're given our life, our health, our talents, our skills, our finances, our homes as a means to minister to others. We're to be humble in receiving and humble in sharing. Then the word gentleness appears in verse 2. Now, the word here is the same in Greek for a soothing medicine or a light, refreshing, a gentle breeze. I really like those two descriptions, don't you? In each case, there's a kind of power that's evident. The wind and the medicine. One can blow things around and the other one can reach into our bloodstream and ease pain or discomfort, but it's all under control. The wind is a, a gentle breeze. It's not going away to control. And the medicines have been trialed and, and they'll do us good. The medicine's been tested or the wind is up, but it's not going to cause any damage. Rather, it is refreshing. Both of these illustrations point towards things that do us good. And we also have the ability to do things, even the capability to be powerful, but we're to use what we have because it's been given by God. And we're to use it to help and refresh and restore and even heal or mend. We're to be medicinal to one another. We're to do each other good. And you see, gentleness is a strength used wisely. Then Paul says we are to be patient. Patience. Again, the root meaning is, is very helpful. It means actually we're to be long-souled. S-O-U-L-E-D. In other words, always taking the long-term view with people. Not expecting them to do everything right first time, but seeing them as a work in progress. And so, can I ask you today, older Christian, and by that I don't just mean age, but people who've been walking the Christian road for a while, can I urge you to be patient with younger Christians? And, and knowledgeable Christians, don't be judgmental in those who haven't yet discovered the truths that you've been knowing and reading about for years. Be patient. Give them time. But you see, the challenge is not just expect them to grow like that, but rather in the community, the body of Christ, we're to be the ones nurturing and encouraging one another, not knocking down and building up. We're actually to invest our time and our patience and our energies and humility with helping those grow in Christ. In fact, let me ask our older Christians, whether you're in your 20s or your 80s today, whether by age or years in the faith, who is it actually at this moment in time we're nurturing in the faith? Who is it that we've drawn alongside and, and put the arm over the shoulder and say, can I help you? Can we meet up? 
Can we share? Can I speak to you on the phone? Can, can, can we talk about this? I challenge our elders especially, not just as you or our districts en masse or in a big group, or even our Sunday school teachers, our youth leaders, to see people as they hear, who are we investing time in? Who have we got alongside and had the opportunity to show patience towards? Because it does that person good as well as it does us good because we learn patience. But how does that actually look? Well, Paul doesn't leave it there, sure he doesn't. He goes on to say in the same verse, verse 2, bear with one another in love. Remember that every Christian is that work in progress. We're not all the same. So we are to remember the Lord's patience with us when we've been faithful or faithless. We're to display the same patience with others that we have received ourselves. And all of this, verse 3, is to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We did not create this unity. God brings us together, but we are to maintain it. The Lord placed us in this congregation, whichever one it is, to be part of God's people there. He saved us as an individual and now calls us to do all we can to maintain that with others. And that's where the emphasis in Paul leans on his great list of ones. Do you see his great list of ones in verses 4 to 6? The number one is mentioned seven times, which in the Bible, seven is often the idea of completeness. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You see, these ones have made us one. We're part of one another in Christ's body, filled with one spirit, the Holy Spirit, worshiping the same Lord, the Lord Jesus, sharing the same future. We're going to one place, going through things together, the, the, the one shared experience, part of the same one family, the church. Could there be a more embracing unity than this? It means ill-feeling, impatience, bitterness, jealousy, past mistakes are not to be held up as excuses for not talking or working or meeting together here in Union Road, La Comfort or Molesworth or whatever church fellowship we're from. You see, it's not about self-protection. It's not about self-preservation. It's not about self-promotion. But the Christian life within the church is about self-denial for the sake of Christ's name and his reputation. Over these last few weeks, I've been rereading a copy of the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's quite a marvelous piece of work, and it's not very long, and I urge you to, to get a chance to, to read it. The whole emphasis of, of this book, these letters, it's all about a, a senior devil writing to a junior devil who has been assigned the task of disrupting a young man's life who'd begun to show an interest in the Christian faith. And the whole idea is advice given from the senior devil to the junior devil about how to turn him off course, how, how to throw things for him. And in the very second letter that he writes, the senior devil to the junior devil, he, he says, you know, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me, he says. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out throughout all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes even our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to humans. In other words, the devils are delighted that humans can't see just how glorious the church 
throughout all eternity really is. But he suggests several reasons to throw this young man seeking the Christian faith off course. He says whenever he goes to church, let him see the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face bustling up to him to offer him a hymn sheet. Or secondly, when he gets in his pew and looks around him and he sees a selection of his neighbors whom up to this point he's avoided, you want to lean pretty heavy into the fact that he doesn't get on well with them. And then thirdly, provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or have double chins or wear odd clothes, well, your man will quite easily believe that their religion must be somehow ridiculous. And then finally, in that letter he writes, well, if he considers himself a Christian in some way, let him listen to the voices that say, he just doesn't fit in. I'm better or not like the rest. Folks, that is the work of the devil when he disrupts Christian unity. And we're to avoid it at all costs. Looking around and saying, I'm not like her. I don't like how he does things. He does this and that irritates me. No. Paul says we're to be patient, humble, gentle, bearing with one another in love. And that's a mark of Christ. But secondly, Paul urges that there's a unity amongst this diversity. We read that God has given every believer a spiritual gift. Look at verse 7. A particular grace has been given to each one. And these gifts are not toys to be played with. Rather, they're tools to build with. Christians are not to live in isolation away from Christ's gathered congregation. The church is not just these huge columns and beautiful windows, but rather the believers who meet in one place to bring glory to Christ's name. And these verses then go on to talk about Christ ascending. It's almost like in a little poem it's written. You've got it printed in your Bibles there. The pictures of a military conqueror leading his captives and sharing out his spoils of war as he ascends to heaven. But do you see how the, the parade takes shapes, this victory parade takes shape? Jesus is at the head of the march, as it were. He's accepting the acclamation of heaven of the great warrior, the greatest victory that's already been won. And in procession behind him, we already see what he's conquered. Death is defeated. There's the scourge of illness that he's trampled over, the sadness of the graveside, the tears of separation, as the rubble left behind this incredible champion who marches on to this victory. Now, look at what he's left behind him as a result of the empty cross and the empty tomb. Satan is crushed, not just wounded, but he's gasping his final breath. Sin is there, powerless and impotent. Guilt is dragging his knees. He has no power over the Christian now. This is a joyful procession for every believer to witness for Jesus as Lord. Last weekend, we took a walk along the coastal path near Belfast Lock. And as we walked, we looked out and we saw the Stenoline Ferry making its way, well, very slow progress, almost painfully slow, up the confines of the mouth of Belfast Lock. It was only when it was about 10 minutes further up the lock that we suddenly then began to sense the water, the swell of the boat had left behind, lapping forcefully up the stone walls alongside the coastal path. But it reminded me of all the fuss there was. I can remember growing up in Belfast when the HSS and the Sea Cat first sailed that lock. 
The speeds after the first few weeks had to be slowed way down. Some of you might remember the news stories of dog walkers and joggers being totally engulfed with these huge waves because of the wake from these high-speed vessels that was coming over them, and they hadn't anticipated it. And folks, this is what our Lord Jesus has done. Having gone down to the very depths, having been made sin for us, going down to hell itself, he has been raised not just to life, but to the very heights of heaven, where every creature bows in awe at this beloved eternal Son, and where every saint will sing forever the praises for all time. And you see, Jesus has left this amazing wake, this water of wonder splashing behind him that comes to us. His grace continues to cascade over the walls of our lives. We can never be fully prepared or get over this escape. His mercy splashing all around us constantly, lovingly, consistently. It's as if every day when we think we've seen enough from him, he splashes over us all over again. Folks, that is eternal, incredible love. That's where we're at here in Ephesians 3. That's where we're at if we're believers in Christ. Filled to overflowing with his goodness, breaking into our lives, cascading over the walls of our lives day after day after the wake of his wonderful love. But as we read of Christ the champion, what is it that champions do? What is it that powerful ascended Christ does? Well, many of us have missed Wimbledon this year. We've often seen how the stars throw their sweatbands there, haven't they? Or the sweaty t-shirt that they've worn during the match. And they toss it into the crowd. In other words, they bless their supporters with gifts. They toss the sweatband into the adoring crowd. Now, for Christ, his gracious gifts to the church are given. And they're not sweatbands but they're people. And they are in the person of, verses 11 and 12, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. God calls out those who will speak his word to his church in order to equip the saints for ministry and build up the body of Christ. Now, do we appreciate this? The gracious gifts that God gives his church, the, the great victor of all, the great heavenly champion of all, what gifts does he give? Now, maybe it disappoints some of us, thinking that God's gifts should be something maybe a little bit more spectacular than a group of people listed on the screen there now. But God says, as the reigning world champion, as the conqueror over all, as the victor over sin, death, hell, and the grave, I throw into my crowd of supporters the very best gift I can give you. It's those who will faithfully instruct the church in my word. In the ancient days... The apostles here listed here were God's specially chosen group of people who had seen the risen Christ. They're the ones on whom we base our New Testament. How grateful we are for the eyewitness accounts of the writings of John and Peter and Matthew and Paul and so on. Those who saw and share the risen Savior with us. In fact, if it wasn't for them, we would know nothing of our salvation. It would all be hearsay. But now we have it in our Bibles written down. Their words work today and they're powerful still. Praise God for the apostles. Whilst the prophets served as the divine mouthpiece in the early church to give direction. We all know what the definition of a prophet is, don't we? It's someone who receives the word of God and then shares the word of God. And that's what prophets do. 
And then we've got these evangelists who served as the apostles' lieutenants, sharing the gospel wherever they went. And you see, they're distinct from the pastors and teachers. They've all got a role to play. But then the pastors and teachers are those entrusted by the task of caring for settled congregations, whether it be in Ephesus or Rome or Corinth or Desert Martin or Cookstown or Moneymore or Macrafelt. Wherever God's people are, pastors and teachers are a gift from God to God's people. Now, pastors and teachers aren't the most glamorous callings, but they are God-given callings. And the purpose of these God-given gifts of these particular people was to look at verse 12, equip his people, equip his people. That is, to keep his people in spiritual health. And again, it comes from a, from a, a Greek medical word, this word equip. It means to reset or mend a broken bone. Thus, the fellowship where God's word is expounded and applied, when we gather in church, whether it be online like this or face-to-face, the church is more like a hospital for the sick or a gymnasium to, to rebuild spiritual stamina. So if you're struggling or doubting or fighting for faith, the very worst thing any of us could do would be avoid church. Rather, we should seek it out. And even when our spiritual life seems desert-like, empty, run down, We've got to get into our Bibles and sit under the teaching of God's Word to be built up spiritually again. I mean, if you were physically sick, let's face it, would you not try and book an urgent appointment with the GP? Or if you took really ill, would you not be rushed up, maybe even by ambulance, to A&E? And so it is with spiritual sickness. We've got to get to the hospital, the place where the wounded, sin-sick souls meet week by week. And where is it? It's here, in Molesworth, La Comfort, Union Road, wherever, in church, under God's Word. That's where we start taking the medicine. And the weakest, sickest Christians are the go-it-alone, scriptureless, sermonless Christians those who are not exposed to God's life-restoring word week on week. Just like your GP, the local pastor knows the local situation best and often sees in the congregation those things that are broken or that need reset or that need treated. And so these pastors and teachers are God's gift to the church. And you might say, well, I don't always like what my pastor or my teacher tells me. Well, isn't it a little bit like medicine? It doesn't always taste good, but it does us good. Remember that Paul has seen this work in Ephesus already? On his mission, he stopped over there. He spent two years preaching God's Word, sometimes up to five hours a day, we read. He wasn't just teaching scholars, but he was teaching regular people, all sorts of people. And amazing things began to happen. The Word of God prevailed, we read in Acts 19, and it's described as being mighty. Whenever God's people let God's Word speak, mighty things happened. These ordinary folks were exposed to God's extraordinary message and so transformed that group of believers that they powerfully impacted the whole of Ephesus from being a pagan society to a Christian society. So pastors are called not to do all the work in the church, but do you see what it says? To equip others within the body to do that well. And this is key if we want churches to function as the family they should. Please don't miss this today. The pastors are the equippers to enable the body of Christ to be the doers. 
We are to equip God's people for works of service. That's what it says in verse 12. In essence, when the church service is over, our service begins. And that's what Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 is all about. If you've got a spare 10 minutes later on today, read Acts 6, verses 1 to 7, where the spiritual leadership of the church in Jerusalem is to lead spiritually. The apostles put it like this in Acts 6, verse 2. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Rather, the minister, the pastor, the teacher is to give of himself in preparing God's word in order to inspire and encourage and then unleash God's people in the community again, having received the restorative medicine of God's word once again. Therefore, pastors are to take the time the bulk of their time to read and prepare and study and relate the scriptures in a way that feeds the hungry believer, that brings healing to the wounded Christian, that binds up the broken and resources the regular believers with an understanding of who God is and the wonders of what he's done for them. That's how we're to assess our pastors. Have they equipped us to be knowing God's word, growing in God's word, going deeper in God's word, which results in positive Christian action in response to God's word. I'm always amazed that once the troubled church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6 verse 7 worked this out, we read the number of disciples increased rapidly. Acts 6 verse 7. Maybe we need to reassess who does what and when. Let us not turn our pastors into Presbyterian priests, having them run aimlessly here and there, expecting them to be everywhere and decide everything. Let us enable them so that they might then better equip us for works of service. That's what the Bible says. So then the powerful word would begin to do its work. Thirdly, all of this is with the aim that believers grow to a spiritual maturity. Let me read verses 13 to 16 for us. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the very cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see, the onus on the pastor teacher to lead people to Jesus is not just at the start. It's not just at the source of salvation, but throughout our lives. Time and again, the pastor is the point sheet people back to Jesus. That's what verse 13 says. Until we reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. There's always more to know about our Lord Jesus. And the pastor's job is to help us in that. We're not just to lean on Christ for salvation, but lead others to him. We're called to be like him, becoming mature, attaining the measure of the fullness of Christ. And as a church, through our teaching, our troubles and our joys, our challenges and experiences, have we become more mature? Do we relate to one another better than we did this time last year? Are we displaying an increased measure, that humble spirit that thinks more of others than ourselves? 
Are we a childish church or are we a mature church? Are we tossed about and tickled by every latest fad and every new big name speaker who seems to be far more attractive because he's got a great name or he's not from round here and claims to have done some amazing new thing that sweeps through the Christian community? Are we mature enough, Paul asked, to handle that so we're not just tossed about like a poor little baby caught in the waves and drowning? The regular teaching of and exposure to God's word is the antidote to human deception and error. And then Paul strikes this lovely balance in verse 15. Do you see it? Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. It has been well said that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. And that is so, so true. If I really care for a brother or sister in Christ, it is not the height of neglect if I refuse to point out to them the error of their ways, the danger of a non-Christian relationship they're in, the exceptionally busy hours of work that have taken them maybe away from their family or church fellowship, or the teaching and error that they're reading or listening to, the moody-spirited person who brings that same moody spirit around church so that people struggle to relate to them. Rather, it's a mark of maturity when we're able to share the truth of God's love with our fellow Christians and do it in love. And the last evidence of our maturity is the cooperation spoken of in verse 16. Verse 16 reminds us, From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each does its part. We realize that as members of one body, we belong to one another. Each believer, no matter how insignificant he or she may appear to be, has a ministry to other believers. And look at the emphasis. It's all rooted in love. Again, that's the theme of chapter 4 in verse 2 and 15 and 16. Love is the circulatory system of this body. It's Christ-like, which means it's sacrificial. Spiritual unity is not something that we just manufacture, but it's something we already have because Christ has brought us together and rooted us and established us in love. Like that memory verse that we've been learning in Ephesians 3. We must do all we can to protect and maintain that love. For stunted fellowship always derives from either a lack of truth or a lack of love. Either it's because we don't know what's right or we don't do what's right. So let us equip one another that all of us may grow together to be more like Christ. And I do not think it's overstating the matter to say that the survival of evangelical Christianity in the 21st century will depend on how seriously we are about taking and applying the truth from Ephesians chapter 4 because the battle is fierce and our enemies are ruthless. And we need one another now more than ever before. So today, stop and thank God for this family, our church family, your church family, his family of families. We need one another, and the only way to maintain our unity in Christ is by showing our commitment to him through our commitment to one another. Oh, the world desperately needs to see this. For the power of our witness is in large part due to the compelling new society we demonstrate in this amazing thing that God has drawn together that he calls his beloved church.
Let me pray for a moment as we finish. Father, you have brought us together as one people. We worship one Savior. We only have one Lord. And we pray for strength for our faith and a deeper devotion to you that we may love one another as you have loved us in gentleness, humility, and patience. Give us that unity in our diversity and may we grow to be increasingly mature in Christ now and in the days to come. Amen.